0: you know you you might have a c5 just a root mm. and fifth and then but when you put an f under it, it becomes f sus two yeah and then if you put a g under it it's a g sus four you know but if you put a d under it, it's d minor 11 but if you put an a under it, it's a minor seven and if you saw all those chords in a row piano players who don't know would just make a meal of all that <laughs> Can <laughs> you imagine with all those numbers?
1: Yeah.
0: And they go, oh, and they're And so they wouldn't ever think to just go C and G and let's keep that on the top of everything while I move the bass note around.
1: It's like a whole nother way of thinking.
0: Yeah, it's massively another way of thinking.
1: Hello, welcome back to the Keys Coach Podcast. My name's Adam, and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano keys, and synth players, and talk about their life in music. Today we're chatting with Pete Churchill. Now he's an amazing pianist, a singer, a songwriter, composer, arranger, teacher, the list just goes on. He's done everything. He's been such an inspiration on so many people, particularly on me and anyone who studied with him. This is a slightly longer podcast than usual, and I did think about cutting it down, but there are just so many amazing insights into piano playing, harmony, teaching. I just wanted to keep it all in for you. So I highly recommend getting yourself a nice cup of tea or a beverage of some description and settling in for this episode. In this conversation, we chat about so much, right the way through from how Pete got started on the piano to learning by ear. We chat about his philosophy around teaching, some top strategies for learning to sing and play the piano at the same time. We also chat about how Pete thinks of his right hand like a gospel choir and how transcribing loads of James Taylor's guitar picking patterns changed the way he thinks about harmony before we dive into the conversation thank you once again to everyone that's got in touch to say they're enjoying the podcast i've got lots of exciting guests coming up for you and if you're looking to level up your keys playing and are interested in hearing more about the keys coach as we continue to grow i've put a link to sign up to our wait list in the episode description this will mean you'll be the first to know as soon as new content is released we've got lots of exciting plans for the future okay here we go here is the conversation i had with the amazing pete churchill Okay brilliant Pete, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Uh it's a pleasure. Yeah. Great to see you.
1: So you're you're in Bedford at the moment that's where you uh that's where you uh, reside. Yeah nowadays.
0: Bedford is, it was everybody kind of decides at some point to move a little further out of London maybe maybe at my time of life it makes more sense than when I was younger just for a bit more space and uh Yeah you know and-
1: it's nice I've I've been to your house uh, so many times now for different projects we've been working on mm. and uh it's like I describe it as like the music factory, because <laughs> yeah, it's like you got two rooms that are like music rooms, and Nikki's in one, and you're in the other. and yeah. Nikki, Nikki Isles, by the way, that is for everyone who's yeah. listening. he's um, And Nikki's, Pete's um, wife, amazing jazz piano player. Yeah, and
0: she's and now she's like full time composer because she's got this post in Germany in Hamburg with the NDR big band. Yeah. And so that means. The front room is piled high with music and, well, it always has been, but there seems a little more of it these days. And one of the reasons we moved yeah. here was just to give us the space. You know, I realise sometimes what happens if you live in a small space, you're working on something and then you sort of tidy it away because the space you were using has to be used for something else. Something else, yeah. You know, exactly, like eating yeah. food or something. And, that, and the thing is, if you move out of town... You can sometimes get more space you know and that means you can leave stuff out you know which really helps to continuity for writing and things
1: no it's brilliant um well i guess i guess the first place to start is like i'd love to chat about the breadth of work you do because i think that's whenever i think of you i think of just all of the different things you do which is like just to, just as a, a few, it's like choirs, it's teaching, it's gigging, it's playing, it's work with teachers, it's writing songs for a thousand kids at the Albert Hall. It's so wide. And I guess the first question is like, did you always think that would be the case? Or has it just emerged that you are
0: now doing all these different things? Or did you always aim to do that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, It's I had no idea. I couldn't have written my job description when I you know, when I started out, and I didn't start out doing music, I started out trying to avoid music because my parents were both quite heavy classical musicians, and although educators, so I was, I was getting what, you know, I I was aware of teaching as a thing that could be done well, Mm. and uh, so I was, remember the conversations, you know, about teaching, um, even though I was trying to do art history at the time, and then, right, okay. uh, and then I I kind of stumbled into music out of necessity uh, when I was at university in Canada, where my parents were teaching, because uh, I was always playing piano. I didn't I didn't pursue the classical piano thing. I was like pretty much self-taught as a piano player, but I was writing songs and starting to play in piano bars and things. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so so it kind of started out furtively, really. I started out trying to. Write songs, and then while the university theatre company said, "Would you write us a musical?" and I said, oh, "Yeah, sure," because I say, I say yes to everything. I don't think right, I've ever okay. had any judgment. I have, I have noticed yeah. that. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, and that that started <laughs> yeah. like you know, I I used to, you know, I used to agree to do things, thinking that was the only way I'd get anything done because if I'd agreed to it, then it was simply mm. a contract it had to happen. Yeah. Yeah and and so the learning on the job thing was like that so i agreed to write this musical and then they said uh, we think there's a band on stage in this particular musical that had to set in a recording studio or something there had to be a band and and then they assumed that i would write music for the band and i didn't know how to write music down you know right okay, so yeah, then yeah. i started that i had six months to get it together and i because materials of music course you know notation i mean i kind of knew i'd done up to grade three piano a long time ago right but i hadn't really you know and 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 i was you know and i was playing elton john songs and i was but i was playing some jazz and i was into frank sinatra and you know so that that kind of breadth of thing was there was never any kind of um and there were never any parameters to my listening you know Right. Okay. So I was, I was already writing r- little songs in different styles and things. Um, when, when I was, yeah, just to, I'm trying to figure out how I had to play to make it sound authentic. You know,
1: it's interesting you say you were self-taught because I think nowadays when people say they're self-taught, you immediately think of they learn online or they learn through YouTube or they kind of I don't know that there's some sort of like internet kind of version of them teaching themselves. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder, how do you teach yourself when that resource isn't necessarily there, and you know, and the, the availability of music isn't as sort of wide as it is now with things like Spotify? How do you how do you go about
0: teaching yourself, and what was what kind of things were you doing? So, I, I remember um, my parents had these a few sort of jazzy albums, Franks and after Count Basie, Nat King Cole, George Shearing, Peggy Lee. Um, and Noel Coward, funnily enough, which was probably quite formative for me. But the thing is, I remember thinking, oh, I like these songs. And then I'd go to the university library. And my my dad had started the music department at this university. So he had stocked the library. This was in Canada, in Canada wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so his, yeah. he set up this library of scores, but included songbooks. So there was like the Ellington songbook, you know, the old songbooks published, mm. Harold Arland, Gershwin, Rogers and Hart, da, 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 Jerome Kern and I'd that's get it. them out and then I'd look at them and I'd think this doesn't sound anything like the record <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, I'd, yeah. and I worked my way through the chord symbols teaching myself oh that must mean that sound because I've got the record and this must be a minor kind of sevens with everything in it you know Yeah. but yeah. then I'd look at those little ukulele chords and go oh that's not the whole story you know and then right. I'd look at the bass note in the piano and realize that the ukulele chords had nothing to do with the bass note. It was just the, they matched the right hand. And there were no fake books. This was before fake books. So if I wanted to learn repertoire, I had the records to listen to, and it was vinyl. So, yeah. And I had these songbooks, and then I had to figure out how that one became the other. And that curiosity, I think, was what got me probably stayed with me forever realizing that firstly that there was no definitive version of anything yeah you know and there was no definitive way to play it and that the song had an existence separate from the performance of the song
1: right okay. that's
0: so that, that nowadays the recorded version seem to be the that authority you know and people are basically almost like doing covers of jazz things you know but i had no there's a song and then there's the music theater version of the song and there's like a really old 78 with the song on it with some dance. Yeah, and, then yeah, yeah. and then there's Frank Sinatra. And then there was like Oscar Peterson's version of something. And I was trying to figure out how all that could be. So the breadth you talk about was like, okay, so this is... I'm, I probably am song-based in my education of myself, sitting down and trying to... Fit, and I realised, I, I, listening back to recordings, cassettes of myself on a gig in about 1980... 79 i mean i i think big bands were quite influential because i seem to be trying to play everything at the same time right Both okay, bands yeah were going, yeah you know, trumpets and trombones and i was doubling yeah. everything there was no elegance
1: just trying to copy it all off yeah the just
0: i mean i was pretty much just
1: having a go you know you said you
0: took, you did a lot of piano bar gigs. Yeah. What
1: kind of things did that? What did that mean? Okay. What, did, what what kind of things were you doing? Because I know, I know you took requests as well, which is quite an impressive thing to do if you if you if you uh, if you don't necessarily
0: know the, song, know the song. Yeah, but you know that you know I, this is a thing I think is missing, like because there's no need for it anymore. But it used like when I studied, when I was in the music department, and finally getting my my theoretical thing together. One of the things you had to do is harmonise melodies and you'd be given like yeah. five melodies and you had to like harmonise them and hand them in, you know. So this idea of listening to a melody and hearing stuff that could happen underneath a melody
1: underneath it, yeah,
0: was, was something I knew from that. But also when I was in, I, you know, I realise now it's a, such a rare thing to, to have a gig like that I mean, maybe I'm the last of the generation who had those gigs where I I did, I found an article actually from the Ottawa Citizen magazine. I lived in Ottawa and it's Pete's Piano Bar and it was a big article about me me and the fact that I played six nights a week from like 10 o'clock till two in the morning and people had requests and, and I was basically, you know, I don't know if it was any good, but I sort of had to keep up. Yeah, 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 baptism by fire. And I was able to, yeah, and that knack of hearing a melody and going, well, there's only a couple of things that could happen under this Yeah, I'll do the most predictable one and see if it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I managed to start getting, realise that there was some formulae to the way songs, even pop songs were written, you know, and that things, and that also different styles required different kinds of accompaniment. You know, the chord symbol was just a symbol I had to figure out what the f- the facts were, <laughs> depending on the context, you know. And you were singing as well, right? Yeah, and that's and I was singing, so as well as the punters were singing. That's <laughs> the thing. The microphones <laughs> around was the room, and it was like, oh yeah. God, here we go. But but I think that was quite a training ground. I didn't know it at the time, but it was quite a, you know. It was, It was obviously a bit of a baptism of fire at first, but I kind of got into it and people kept turning up, so I must have been doing something right. And then in Canada, the breadth of the thing continued because where I lived was such a small... Although it was a capital city, Ottawa is not large in terms of other cities, you know. I mean, Toronto is bigger, you know. And so you had to be able... You couldn't just specialise in any one kind of music. You had to do absolutely everything. So I found myself in different bands, you know. Uh, yeah, massively different bands from a country and western band. I had a, a kind of old-fashioned dance band at a hotel in a ballroom and I had a called, sort of jazz trio thing and a kind of swing dance kind of gig where you had to get the tempos right. I was in a kind of blues band, I think, with horn section and I played r- Rhodes and there was a Hammond organ player who played pedals, you know. It was that kind of thing and it was all very very much like those american blues show bands you know and i think i also also played some reggae and, and it you know that's that's a, so you're constantly putting off one hand taking one hat off and putting another one on
1: i think one of the things a lot of people um, maybe struggle with is knowing how to play differently when you're playing solo oh. and when you're playing in a with a band yeah and i think that might i mean how did you how did you learn those skills
0: so then i did it i was playing solo before i played with the band right Right. So, you know, I had to work out like, you know, the the, the octave bass lines, if it was a, like like a rocky thing, you know, I had to play, I yeah. had to figure out how to make them a little more agile, if it was a little more like soul or Motown, you know, and then I had to figure out in jazz things, I can stretch a 10th.
1: Very good, yeah. Yeah,
0: so, so I realized that that, if I could p- play a 10th, you know, root in the th- high third in my left hand, that would give... Jazz chords, more resonance, um, and I could walk tenths in a few keys, you know. And then I was massively into Errol Garner because that was the first LP I bought with my own money. And so then I thought, oh, I didn't know he was niche, that nobody else played like him, and that like learning to play like Errol Garner was not going to be help me prepare for every kind of thing. Yeah,
1: every other music.
0: Yeah, yeah. it just stayed like oh. But the thing is, I realized the, you know, the practicing with a metronome thing that's, that people do. Um, I tried to get my left hand, like Errol Garner's, to be a metronome. And I think my kind of idea of time feel, I started to sense how to steady that against an independent right hand, you know. So you'd actually practice
1: with a metronome?
0: No, I wouldn't practice with a metronome. I tried, but I got this pulse thing. Like it was all like, like with Errol Garner's left hand is like a metronome, it just goes yeah okay chunk 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 chunk, you know oh so clearly i've got to divide my left and right hands at some point and 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 i think that was where i got a sense of maybe stability like rhythmic stability and uh, at the university i found a in the theater there was a steinway piano locked away and i made friends with the stage manager who gave me the key to the cupboard. And, and I would, if I had no classes, I'd go to the theatre and roll the Steinway out into the middle of the stage and then sit and play that like, for four hours, trying to play things off this Errol Garner album, or I'd be a Night Train, I got that, and I was trying to learn Oscar Peterson's Blues Licks. I was thinking, oh, these sound good. But it was a very, still homemade, you know, I was trying to teach myself all those things. And I didn't know there was such a thing as jazz education. I had no idea. You could actually do it in college. It's so interesting that you started off
1: that way because I think now when a lot of people think of you and particularly the sort of work you do, a lot of the things you teach, you've got a system for how you teach triads Mm. or how you teach um, really, really complex jazz harmony, modes, modes of the mind, all of these different things. And it's quite interesting that you came not knowing what any... you began not knowing what any of that stuff was and had to develop your own system. So when did that kind of like um, compartmentalizing happen?
0: Yeah. So the thing is I, you know, it was all kind of a mishmash, but I had this idea. I went to, I went to do a summer course in Dartington. I was still living in Canada, but I got accepted to write film music with, with Richard Rodney Bennett.
1: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah.
0: Foot foot. And, and it was amazing moment. It was a great film composer, jazz pianist, songwriter, as well as, as, as wrote symphonies and operas and, and he was, I thought, oh, well, he, he seems to cover a lot of bases. So th- I thought that's quite interesting. I gravitated towards that kind of breadth. It seemed to be like, it was like he, he was giving me permission in some ways to just don't specialize, just keep going. It's all music, you know. And yeah. I like the fact that although everybody loved him as a classical composer, film composer, he said that I'm most happy when I sit at the piano in New York in the corner of a bar and play songs for people. And you yeah. thought, oh, my Lord, that's amazing. I remember
1: you saying that to me, and I just thought, oh, wow, that's so amazing. That someone it is amazing, is You know, it? done all these amazing things and had orchestras
0: playing his music and still just, like, sitting at a piano and yeah. just playing yeah. songs, you know. And, I, and, it, and it made me – I thought that was not – I liked the fact that he wasn't precious about it. In fact, he called his, he called his film music, that's like journalism, you know. Mm. It's like you've got to be good and you've got to be literate and it's got to work and it's got to be informative and do the job it does. But it's not a novel.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, or, you know, it's not poetry or something. You know, it's like... and, and, and So I started to realise that there were different... There was a craft that you really had to get together. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is, I met people on that course that um, that were studied at the Guildhall. Right. And then I got this idea of maybe I'll apply to the Guildhall. And there was this one-year postgrad in in jazz... This is 19, mid-80s I went, right. and, and I didn't get in the first time because I didn't really know what I was applying for. I think I applied for the classical course. Right. I sent in the weird the weird <laughs> of scores, and they yeah. must have thought, oh, because literally I'd written incidental music, a percussion score for a Shakespeare play at university, but that included, like, songs for lute and recorder and, and a percussion score, and, and and, you know, it was just... It was pretty, and then I had this, I I was into kind of jazz fusion and writing in odd time signatures and I'd written this piece and recorded it with a horn section and sent that in and then I sent some other, you know, I I didn't know. It was just, they must have looked at it and thought I was absolutely bonkers. (laughs) But then somebody said, well, maybe you should try for the jazz thing. So the following year I applied for the jazz course and and got on as a composer-arranger, which is what I wanted. Mm. And, but still, no, no organisation in my thinking, which is your question, right? And that happened because I remember the first week we we were given a kind of general test of what we knew, and I realised I had no idea what a mode was. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, they had all this. There were quite a lot of people there who'd done the Leeds College of Music thing, undergrad, and they all knew, and I was like, my Chord symbols were pretty homemade, and and I I didn't understand modal theory. I was probably using them, but I hadn't any names for things. But um, didn't understand. You probably knew them. the sound. I knew the sound. Yeah, and for me, it always has the sound first, as and then the meaning yeah. came. bigger. But what I've realised, because when I was doing mute classical music, I was quite into. I mean, the classical degree I eventually did, which wasn't. Piano. i didn't you know really study piano classical piano but i studied harmony and counterpoint you know in canada and, and did it really heavily and wrote fugues and things and i realized i like that kind of organization yeah and i like 12 tone music because i liked trying to work out how to write music with on tone rows with limited pitches and organize everything i, I kind of have that side of me that thinks that's quite little cool. sudoku puzzles yeah. yeah but but like i'm terrible at math Right okay. I think I can hear maths. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah yeah yeah. You know I just I can't do my counts or numbers terrify me. But mm. but but then if I have a sound first I'm happy to use numbers to describe sound. And so it's it's interesting that I've come I've always come at it that way. So so I realized that I could I, when it, when they started to to talk about things like modes I kind of went oh okay so this is just like Proportion, I can, I totally get this, you know. I mean, I'd written the, you know, I'd written the twelve-tone fugal expositions. How hard could it be, you know? Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course.
0: And so I got into that. I, I got into the kind of organisation of it and wrote, wrote a lot of music in that year. But mostly I was. This is somebody asked me this the other day. um Oh yeah, I've just been in Germany for a week working with the, their youth jazz orchestra and singers and they were asking me about the way i played and accompanied you know and it comes down to the fact that i was start, I started to write things large thing big band things you know horn sections and then big bands and then i took on the vocal group in that one year and started to write vocal arrangements but everything you wrote you had to copy parts by hand you know yeah. and you wanna be pretty pretty confident that if you're gonna copy a, a big band chart all the parts by hand, mm. you wanna be confident that it's you don't wanna to have to do it again. It's gotta No, say, of course. I part.
1: just so every just so everyone listening what that if you copy a big band chart by hand you not only have to write out the entire score by hand which is every single instrument where everyone's playing you also have to write out every single part, four trumpets, yeah. four trombones five saxophones, yeah. four, I mean that must just be, like, I remember you saying you used to just sit up with a big pot of coffee.
0: Yeah yes. and, and I was, ch- I thought I'm only here for a year, Yeah. I'm going to do this, so, but the, how it affected my piano playing was the interesting thing because if you if you've got a lot of like trumpets and trombones like four trumpets four trombones and then five saxes all playing simultaneously and you've got mm-hmm. this big what they call a shout chorus you know in chat if i wanted to know how it sounded i had to be able to play it in real time yeah and there were things like saxophone solos you know where all the sax five saxophone players stand up that old fact was not old-fashioned i guess but it's and they'll go whoa, 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 and it's all in five-part harmony and it sounds yeah. amazing you know Well, if you wrote one of those, you actually had to play it in real time. Wow. And and then I'm thinking, I remember thinking, oh, why don't I play like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) You're getting all those sounds under your fingers. It sounds very cool. It sounds quite
0: good. You know, you get all those sounds. And then the trumpets in big triads at the top and the trombones in clusters. And I put them together and I went, oh, this sounds quite cool. So that's the beginning of my, uh, my training that year to play a ranger's piano what they now call a ranger's piano, which is where anything you play, you could score up and it would sound good if it was played by instruments. I mean, ish, you know. And I think that was probably quite quite an education f- for me just because there was no Sibelius, there was no yeah. notation software that could play back things.
1: You just had to learn how to play it all under your fingers, yeah. Yeah,
0: everything you played, like, um, you know, and I realised there were families of sound. Right. I still call it that. And that trombone, trombone sounded good in these big kind of chorale open voicings, which is sort of like gospel music, you know. Or you know, and I thought, oh, that sounds good, right? And that's that trombone sound. And then triads sound good in those kind of like you know horn sectiony things that are bright. And you, you know, and I've i isolated those sounds, and and the saxophones you know, in five parts. So I learned to play in five parts, you know, with passing chords and you know i could move a chord up and down a semitone or something just for a bit of a vibe you know and i was going oh, sounds good you know and it sort of and it crept into my playing i think
1: no absolutely i mean it's so interesting whenever i've seen you do conferences or we've spoken before about this you've always said sound is so much more important than being able to put a name to it or under- yeah. being able to recognize the sound already. why is that do you think why is it so much more important to be able to hear something before you necessarily know what it is?
0: Um, but I think because you can, because cause as soon as you know what it is, you've got a, an extra process between your instinct and the realization of your instinct. You know, if you know what it's called, you go, oh, I think I need to play something like this. And you have a name and then you can, you've can, you already left the event that you're meant to be connected with. And right. you've done a little bit of number crunching.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's you like know, an extra. But, I see what you mean. There's an extra process, isn't there's there? An there's an extra, extra step.
0: step in between the the action and the reaction to the action. You right. know what I mean? Somebody does something, and you know, for instance, oh, you know, you've heard me say this. Like when you play in a in a band, you're in a you're in a rhythm section. You're not in a harmony section. Yeah. So no matter how much I love harmony, nobody else cares. It's just my I cross I have to bear in order to yeah. be rhythmic. I have to yeah. sort everything I like. About harmony has to be happen in time. Mm. So, so practicing so that I don't have to think about harmony when I react rhythmically is the thing. Right. And I think that's why. So I started to practice. I started to put things for my into kind of like I need to practice making sure that even if the chord changes or the key changes or something, I can maintain this sound. Yeah. Because it's appropriate. What I don't have. Have happen is when I'm playing, and then we go into a funny key, and th- the bottom drops out of the rhythm section because I'm fumbling around for a chord I haven't practiced. You know, in A or something. You know, and the thing is, it wasn't. I didn't solve those problems, but I, I think I was asking the right questions. You know, didn't have it, but I, I thought this is this this kind of fluency I hear on records. I don't hear people going, "Excuse me, I just have to sort out my voicings in A before." Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, of course
0: people yeah. had obviously done all that work and that's why they were so fluent you know
1: it's interesting when i whenever you've spoken about practicing you've always said you practice stuff in every key stuff. and i wondered if you could yeah. just if you could just explain
0: what that what that means you just, <laughs> yeah, it's quite a way, yeah, yeah. yeah you oh, did yeah hey. a
1: little while ago you, i think you did and it was i just thought that's so interesting
0: yeah so the interesting thing i reacted against the kind of athleticism of practicing um, like songs in every key there's a kind of like I realised that there is in the jazz education thing all keys practice as a kind of mantra. And it's like yeah, but what do you mean by that? Oh, you just do go up in semitones. You see, yeah, yeah, but that's not really how music goes. You know, that doesn't happen unless you're yeah, on a Stevie Wonder tune. You know, <laughs> you know, you know. So what? And then I said, well, what's Why do you need to play in all keys? Ah, uh, oh yeah, because some tunes momentarily go into another key, a bridge or something. Yeah. And that's like, oh, oh, I haven't really looked at this key as much as I've looked at the other one, you know. So, so I realised that there's stuff that happens all the time in tunes, you know. Whether you're playing Yellow Brick Road, mm. whether you're playing, you know, Billy Joel tune, or you know, or whether you're playing a jazz standard or something, there, but there are patterns, you know. And I, you know, I realised quite early on that that I would practice something and then I'd come across the same situation in, in another context. And I'd sort of find myself reinventing the wheel because I hadn't spotted things that, that, that stuff, the stuff that recurs, yeah. you know, and just because you're in another key doesn't mean it's different. It's just, and, and I realized also intervals. I think I started to think intervalically quite early on.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting that I don't necessarily always think in that way, but I've I, from talking to you and from seeing how you process things when you're writing or you're, you're arranging or you're composing, you think very much in terms of like the gaps between notes and you see that visually and yeah. you hear that. And I, I just, that'd be cool to hear a bit more about that.
0: So I, it happened, I can, I can tell you exactly when it happened. It was my, my dad used to play standards. And when I was young, maybe 11 or 12, I used to pick out the tune of the standards. At the top of the piano and it was a right. kind of like nice little domestic thing to do you know at parties and everybody yeah. went oh isn't he talented you know and my dad obviously thought i was getting a bit cocky you know right so we were doing it at a party and he went up a semi-turn and i completely fell apart right okay play, you? I, it, like he, he went come on and i was like ah and then i you know i had a sort of crisis and went to my room in tears you know right and then when everybody left the house i came down and thought why is it that i can't play i don't know whatever tune it's like have you met miss jones why can i play an f but i can't play it in an g like, sharp yeah exactly yeah, yeah. what's going on and i realized that the thing that doesn't change as you move from key to key is mm. the intervals yeah. so i had to sit at the piano and realize this is a fifth this is a fifth this is this is a sixth, this, this is a major seven this is a seven all my intervals they felt different but they were the same right And so the feel of the key body I remember even sitting down going, oh, so this triad is three white notes. This triad goes white, black, black, or black, white, white, or black, white, black, you know, just this one, you know? And it was it was as simple as that. And then and I think I did it with triads. So before I learned seventh chords, I'd i I'd realized that I'd realized intervals, how intervals felt, similar intervals felt. So even if I was just doing, like, three chords and the truth, you know, kind of mm. so on the piano, I figured out. And then one of the things you do at, at, in a kind of classical harmony, or you used to, used to harmonize major scales with triads and minor scales. So before seventh chords, I had that reinforced by that kind of, like, practice. practice. So so the thing is, intervals, you know, I I do think intervallically, um, and I'm also... Yeah, I just I, I think I know the feel feel of different chords of the same chord in different situations. But I'm not into practicing a tune in all keys. So I started right. to isolate stuff that kept happening. So you know, turnarounds, mm. things sometimes whole eight bar sequences. Descending and, you know, bass lines yeah, or yeah. all those kind of things. And then I started to give them name I realised I had names for myself for things that occurred a lot. And they were normally connected To tunes, oh, that's that night and day thing, or that's that's that circle of fifths thing in that Cat Stevens tune, you know? Right. Okay. And then it goes, oh, that's that mostly, and still, and the Green Dolphin Street progression, and then you know, and I realised that some guy wrote a book where he gave names to things that, but that would that he made up, and I was thinking, okay, so you've just put another step between me. And the sound. I now have to call it like, oh, I don't know, you know, such and such. I'd, I'd rather call it after a tune.
1: Yeah, then you can always recall that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Then yeah, I'm yeah. still. I'm not leaving the situation and going somewhere else and giving it a name like this is the the cinnamon cadence or something. Yeah. You know, like people do.
1: Yeah. Like, crazy things. Quite like like subjective
0: like that, yeah. things like that. And I thought, no, I have to stay connected to the to the music I'm playing. So I so that thing of playing in all keys, the need to think intervallically so I could play in all keys and i realized i was number although i hadn't i didn't say to myself 1436251 that's how i was thinking i know you're super busy nowadays and you've got so many different projects on
1: but if you had say for example an afternoon where you could just sit down and practice piano what sort of things would you would you do would you just play through songs or would you actually find something specific you wanted to practice i mean what what would that look like
0: so i think i've got i've come back you know i've come back to Songs, actually, right? You know, I'm I'm full circle. Yeah, it's a bit. It's it's funny. It's like I don't really have enough enough time to do it, but I can imagine myself just being. I'd like to get my singer pianism together. You know, like like like. I mean, sometimes it, it's you know, my work takes me away from the piano for a while. Yeah, and I sit down and I go, oh it's like an old friend, and I think, God, you know, you deserve you should do this for yourself you know and mm-hmm. and that means so you know i've started to learn like most of the songs that i know and as you know I, I there are songs in my head i wish weren't in my head you know I've got yeah, so of many course songs you know that but but i realized that most of the songs i know i learned 20 or 30 years ago 30 years ago and so i think i need i want to learn some fresh songs or some songs i half know and actually start to i'd like to sit down and actually you know contextualize the the songs not just because they're great old songs but actually i think maybe we had this conversation before where i'm trying to find a reason to to sing everything now
1: yeah of course you know
0: and it seems like if if i have this kind of large repository of material to draw upon it sort of seems like a good fit if i just start being quite selective and then and then sit down and you know i have to do these concerts sometimes when i go off teaching there's a gig involved and I find myself in the schedule oh Pete's going to do a solo piano singing gig uh, on Thursday and he's like what am I oh yeah and so you know I was just in Australia back at the beginning of July you know in New South Wales and there was a theatre and there was a grand piano and there was me and it was like oh my lord there's that I have to this is the thing I should be thinking more about and it always it's fine I just need a quiet moment and, and to think through some keys and why I'm doing this song and, and, and maybe, as you know, I'm really interested in the songwriters themselves. I've, 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 I've realised that's, that's my connection with, with the songwriters is sometimes equal or more than my connection to the performance. That's my little project for myself. I can see that that's, that's going to be something I'll increasingly come back to when I perhaps step away from the, the more energetic stuff.
1: Hi, it's Adam here. I just want to quickly interrupt the podcast to ask you a very small favor. If you're getting lots of value from these conversations and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, please do subscribe to The Keys Coach wherever you get your podcasts. This means that you can continue to hear these great conversations and you'll be notified each time a new episode comes out. And if you're feeling even more generous, please do consider leaving us a review. This helps others to discover the podcast and join this community. Thank you so much for your support. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting that you say you want to get the singing and piano thing together because I think when whenever I've seen you play, it seems ap- it's so seamless. The link between what you're singing and sometimes your back phrasing when you're singing and your pianos, but it's, it's a, such a complex thing. And I just wondered, how can someone who maybe is struggling to connect the two, their voice and their piano playing, what kind of things can they practise to get that together? Because I know some people really struggle connecting
0: those two yeah. things. So I'm, all right, so I can be, I'm, it's interesting, now that I teach, you know, it's been eight years now, I've had this other life running a jazz vocal department in Brussels. You go over there every two weeks, don't every you? Every two weeks, sometimes every week, so. Wow. And I have like 12, maybe 10 or 12 jazz singers, but, but some of them are pianists. They, maybe some of them have heard there was a singer pianist running a department, you know. And w- when I arrived at the Guildhall in the mid-'80s, I, said, you know, I basically stopped singing. Why was that? Because I thought singing was just something you did if you needed a gig in a piano bar, you know. Yeah. I didn't think it was like something I did seriously. And actually, I stopped singing because I needed to improve my piano playing and so sometimes it's quite a good idea to separate those things and i maybe didn't really sing in public for about 10 years and uh and i came out of college accompanying a lot of singers and you know arrangers piano i was getting Mm. quite a few gigs i was you know i'd accompanied myself so i kind of knew how to accompany singers Mm. and then i got this i got this gig with mark murphy yeah the amazing jazz vocalist but yeah amazing jazz vocalist and one one evening after being you know, working with him for five years or more, he uh, he made me sing a song at the Pizza Express, you know. He said, I gotta take a break, you go and sing a song. I went, what? And then I did, and he was really encouraging. And then I did an album and he wrote the liner notes and it was nice. So that kind of got me back into singing. But the thing is, your point about what to sing and play, I've always, I've, I'd always developed those two things simultaneously until I stopped singing and just moved my piano playing up to, next level. So when I returned to singing, I sang better right. because my okay. accompanist was better.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you didn't have so much to think about. Your piano was kind of taken care no, of a bit more. Yeah,
0: and I think I'd, I'd been always been singing while I was practicing the piano but not not in public. But I've realized that one of the, like, when I'm teaching people to accompany themselves, you have to strip it down. So what I've managed to do is work on this methodology um, where you don't you leave your right hand out of the equation so literally just left hand and left hand and voice and yeah the de- left hand and voice nice and the first thing you have to do is f- know what it feels like and you can't look at your left hand and i realized that there's enough to think about in the right hand without looking at your left hand there's all um, you practice the letters right, right yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah it's that old jeff klein the bass player and somebody asked him about what do i play for this chord he says oh he says you do the numbers, I'll do the letters. <laughs> <a piano> player. <laughs> so true, isn't it? Yeah, you know. And yeah. so, forget the numbers. Just work on the roots, how they feel, where they are. There's so much stuff you have to do in your left hand, which we sort of don't think about. But you know, if you if you're playing the octaves, find the octaves for every bass note. Right, and you think, oh yeah, and then. First, you just do do minims or half notes and just sing with that and try and sing freely and keep the pulse going. But you're going to have to do lots of things like, you know, when you when you play an octave and you've got your thumb on a note and then the next note, you can only reach with your second finger. But right, what yeah. you really need is your thumb on that note. But you say so you have to flip.
1: All those little gymnastics. All those
0: things that people trying to sort out whilst they're playing their right hand. Yeah. It's like, what? You have to break it down, don't you? break it down. So I I do that and you know, just like sing tunes. Sing tunes until you don't have to look at your left hand. And the great thing is when you just start putting your right hand in, if you don't know a chord, don't play it, because it'll sound great anyway. It's your bass line. Yeah. It's so secure already. Yeah, Yeah. you've got the you've got them. That's the top and bottom. So, in terms of people who are trying to get their, their company together, what you need is to get something secure and don't worry about the chords until you start to, and then you can start shedding a bit and going, Well, I really, you know, you realize there are some stock shapes you can play in your right hand, and you learn a few of them and, they, and you drop them in as you're singing. Normally, when you take a breath, sometimes people think when you play and sing that you actually play at the same time as you're singing, but in reality, you probably don't. You know, if you listen to Nat King Cole accompanying himself, he jabs away, but in, only when he's finished singing a phrase. So if you imagine your left hand's going and, you you know, you're singing, you know, I don't know, um, the very thought of you, and it's you going boom, boom, boom in your left hand. So I sing the very thought of you, then I put a chord in, and I forget to do chord. The little ordinary things, chord. Yeah, it's not. more of a conversation. Chord, chord. Yeah, and you start getting that, but you're not panicking because it sounds good whether you do that or not. Yeah, the music works and I think without that layer, it. That layering of things, and rationing. I talk about rationing. Ration your your expectations. You know, and I think I went back and did that. I I also realised that this all keys thing. If you're in a key that that you're not confident in, but the song you're singing has gone into that key for the bridge or something. You just reduce what your expectations about what you're going to achieve but still be rhythmic yeah don't lose the groove don't lose the groove just pop pop in the you know if all you can play is a major seven just play that yeah and then walk do the left hand do the right until until you've had the time you know to to maybe practice a bit more stuff in that key (laughs) (laughs) absolutely
1: Everyone who's listening, Pete does a lot of work with vocal groups, and I know you've got your your the choir, the London Vocal Project, which you work with regularly. But you've done a huge amount of work with choirs over the years. Where did that start, and how did how does the piano connect with that? Because I think from 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 all the all the all the stuff I've worked with you on, there is a huge link between the voicings you play on piano and voices. And mm. it'd just be great to hear a bit about that, really.
0: Yeah. So it happened, coming back to that year I spent at the Guildhall, um, I ended up sort of running the vocal group. And it was a good year, the time we were there. I mean, I didn't run it. Scott Stroman ran it, but I found myself covering quite a lot of those. And I started to write vocal arrangements, bring in vocal arrangements. And then I tried to add a horn section to some things, you know.
1: What sort of tunes were you arranging and what kind of things?
0: Some jazz thing. I think I did some of the tunes... Still do "Child Is Born" that Thad Jones thing. I did some gospel tunes. Yeah, I mean, a bit of everything. And then I also wrote musicals. After a couple of years after I left the college, I wrote a musical, and that involved writing lots of choir things. And I remember thinking also, a lot of jazz arranging for voices, is a sort of instrumental arranging, really. Right. And it's not very singer friendly. You know, you look at those kind of like four part close harmony things. And it's it's a real you know you're trying to express something, but all you can think about is what's this interval here? What do you mean by singer singer friendly? What does that mean? The singer friendly means that if you're in block harmony, the lead line is expressing something, and if you can't match their expressing and phrasing because it, your inner part is so tortuous, <laughs> the way it's written, you know, yeah. in and out in intervals, you know, you can you can make those things, you can get the same effect, right? And I like that thought. Right? How how can I make this sound really slick, but actually be very easy? Right. Yeah, of course. And I, and I suddenly thought that's 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 probably uh, you know. And I remember thinking you know we can do this with less with less kind of you know neurosis. And also I realised that a lot of things the people arrange things in harmony, and they just keep them in harmony. It's like why don't you? Just, that, give me give them a bit of unison for now and yeah. again because the harmony sounds better after you've sung in unison so i was making all these kind of realizations which you know we talk about a lot when we work together but that that you know the, the books didn't tell you about judicious use of unison in vocal mm, Yeah, yeah it's all harmony yeah yeah it's all wall-to-wall harmony it's like and wall-to-wall anything is dull you know mm bit of light and shade yeah so so that was so the thing is that's where, how i got i got into arranging for vocal groups that year but also subsequently writing these musicals and having to do chorus numbers and, and and when you work with actors as well maybe who don't read music so much you really have to find a simple way through for all the harmonies and, okay. and, and you start doing things like starting each phrase that has to be harmonized. Starting it in unison, yeah. So that's this kind of safety zone. Unison pick unison pickups, and little, little, and if you can't find a if you can't find a nice chord for a a note, put it in unison. If in doubt, put it in unison. Yeah. And I started to get very practical, and ab- about that, and and I realized that was maybe the thing that that was connected to the fact that I wanted as maximum involvement mm-hmm. from performers as possible, which then we get into this thing about writing for community and people mm. and getting them to sing beyond themselves because you've made something normally not accessible to them much more accessible and singable of course you know? yeah so i suppose yeah i got into vocal arranging and kind of, then i got into gospel music just in, i wanted to be educated you know you have to go to that stuff with some kind of slightly deferential because they're so like those quite they're so good at that you know mm. and i thought this is something i'm a complete beginner at you know you think you know a lot because you've done a jazz course and then mm. you you're reminded all the time of how how ill ill prepared you are to do other kinds of music
1: i know you're really into bishop tg jakes aren't you the novata's mass choir
0: yeah yeah i mean i got i found and I I used to play with a, a, a drummer called Richard Coles who who knew that and used to used to say you should check this out you should check that out check it out and they like, oh what is this you know and of course if you're into Stevie Wonder you start to hear all those incredible choirs the Andre Crouch singers on those albums and you realise you know that's a, there's a whole methodology and a way of teaching and so I got interested in how yeah. to teach by ear through doing that kind of music and I realised that some kinds of music is better taught by ear. You know, actually you're misrepresenting it if you teach it from notation.
1: Do you think, can I, this might be a slightly contentious question, but do you think there's any music that's better taught with notation? Or do you think, I mean, is that, I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, I think some, I I have a very clear in my mind, There's like, if it's composed music, if somebody's conceived it on the paper, it probably should be disseminated from the paper. You know, it's like you could tr- you could try and teach Vivaldi's Gloria by ear, and I think some people have done it, but it was never designed to be taught by ear, you know, otherwise mm, more of it okay. would be in unison. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't think, I think you have, to, it's like how it, but the, but the, what, what sometimes annoys me is when music from the oral tradition is sort of handed out copies and everybody sits there staring at something and you think, God, that could be so yeah. easily taught. You just put that away and we just had a moment as a choir in a circle with some call and response. You yeah, totally get it. Absolutely. You know? And that's, that's interesting. And then you get into that thing of if you have learnt it off the page, how do you make it sound like you haven't learnt it off the page? I mean, that's what all music should. It should sound yeah. like you've never looked at it. Everybody I know who learns from music, classical or otherwise, is trying to get to the point where it doesn't sound like your eyes are glued yeah. to the page anymore and that seems to and that's what learning by ear can teach you because you get a feeling don't you because it's like great and then you somebody puts a piece of music in front of you and you say how can i get that feeling again even mm. though this is there's this barrier now yeah there's this barrier now between me <laughs> yeah yeah so it's uh it's interesting i'm really interested in um how the gospel piano players play i mean more like the groove contemporary gospel is, is maybe what i'm more familiar with and in the kind of pop music where the keyboard players um I, you know i realized that St- stevie is, of course is the master of that kind of keyboard playing but and you know we've talked about this and michael mcdonald as well i love it playing and um you realize that their right hand is basically a choir it's in three yeah. parts and often a triad yeah just a three-part triad, either in root but first inversion or second version and then they move scalically and then I think so nobody has ever told anybody anywhere to practice scales in three parts. But then you listen and you realise that's That's what they're playing. That's yeah. what they're doing. And that's why in that's all part of the oral tradition, because then if you can do that, then you can sit there and you can hand out parts to a choir. Basically, tenors you're singing my right hand thumb, alto's the one in the middle, and the the pinky at the top of the right hand is the sopranos, you know. And and I think that's you know, so I'm I haven't quite figure that out but that might be the next methodology to figure out yeah
1: and I think it's also very cool to find, and this is what something you're so good at is while it's most, the majority of it is triadic with those upper parts of Art, yeah. and Tenor, you can create little moments within oh. the voicings where there is either like a sus shape or a sus yeah. two shape. Yeah. And those things then have such a, a, a much greater effect, you know. And, so, and all the
0: parts are so singable as well. And they're still singable. So that's, yeah. you know, there's an obvious kind of like C major kind of like thing where you use C major and D minor and you go mm. up and down the scale, you mm. know maybe avoiding b so you've got this six note thing that's quite a classic kind of backing vocal shape in three mm-hmm. parts but you don't have to land on c you could land on c sus and suddenly the mm-hmm. tenors have got a really interesting note and the yeah. choir go whoo you know it's great. <laughs> it's great it's great but it's, it's not good. that complicated but no it's really effective and it's sort of disproportionately exciting because you spent such a lot of time just doing ordinary yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and it just sounds great and it's so powerful you it's know it's powerful isn't it you know Just continuing that, I'd love to ask you about... Because I know you've just transcribed a huge amount of James Taylor's music for a vocal project. Mm. And I'd love to talk about how that's changed your piano playing, how that's changed your approach to harmony. Because you've gone super in deep on a bunch of James Taylor songs, transcribed all the guitar parts, all of the, like, everything. And how has that influenced your kind of... The way you
0: think about harmony? So so I've got this... I suddenly realised as I was doing it that there has been this unquestioned, unquestioned kind of um, methodology called keyboard harmony. Yeah. Everybody studies keyboard harmony. If you're classical, you do keyboard harmony. You know, harmony from the keyboard. And, the keyboard. and I realised that there is a total different way of teaching, of thinking about harmony. If you're a guitarist. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I and most jazz guitarists are basically trying to be piano players. You know, we we. we all have to inhabit that keyboard harmony world. Big bands, they basically do piano voicing sometimes, a lot of the Mm. time, you know, in the traditional things. But if you actually forget about jazz and just look at the way uh, guitars are used in folk music, and I don't mean strumming guitars, you know. I'm interested in, I am interested in the strumming, but the picking guitars, you know, the pickers. Mm. Of course, then you have to go to James Taylor because he's probably the cleanest and most authoritative and, you know, picking guitarists who with a big harmonic vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And then of course you realize that, you know, um we have this other we have this other language. So so the the language of guitar harmony is to do with the you know, what's the nearest cadence, you know? And you realize that that most folk harmony is plagal, four one instead of five one. Because that's the nearest you know, I mean, I don't play guitar that well, but I know that if I, you know, if I play a bar chord A, D is not far away, you know. Yeah. It's easy to get to, it's it's closer than going E to A, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, You have to move more, you know. So it's expedient to be, and when you, and the other thing I realised with guitars is they don't think vertically necessary in that style, is that if you play A, you hammer on. Yeah, of course, yeah. So a lot of those notes are inflection notes you know, they're not like notes. They're kind of like embellishments of something else. Yeah. But They've become part of the sound. Like gestures and things gestures, like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, I don't know. And it seemed that there's so much that guitars do. And then you realise that piano players are completely, there's nothing in their training that prepares them to play music like that. Yeah. That's conceived from that kind of guitar playing. Mm. I mean, there are a few piano players who could, most of them have worked with James Taylor, Don Grolnick. Yeah, Larry, Larry Goldings. Goldings. Yeah, they completely get it, but they're rare. Mm-hmm. They're very rare, and I think it's like a it, it's a course of study that people don't really engage with because they don't. Sometimes they don't even know it's a thing. Mm. And then so so I found that like plagal harmony. I found that there, that there is this thing in guitars. You know when my, you know my sons a guitar, guitar so I've got very close to that sound listening to how he's been writing songs for the last 10 years and um there are st- there are there are open strings that 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 ring through everything so you'll get a rogue note in the chord that sounds very cool and it's not it's not part of the chord it's just part of the key yeah i realized that there's a way of guitarist play sometimes where the key key is always there on top you mm-hmm. know the one and five yeah, one and five or, or one, two and five or something, mm. or those little things that yeah, ring through beautiful. everything, and they change the landscape, you know. Mm. And, uh, and they kind of secure it in a way. They, yeah, they, they like, do, and they, they cement the, key. the melody. They support yeah. the melody, the key center like that. And I think, well, the chord symbols that we use is, is inadequate. You know, you start having to do things like, you know, if you decide, you know, you you've got, you might have a C5, just a root mm. and fifth, and then but when you put an f under it, it becomes f sus two yeah and then and then if you put a g under it it's a g sus four you know but if you put a d under it, it's d minor at 11 or the four you know yeah yeah, yeah. but if yeah. you put an a under it, it's a minor seven you know mm. so it's that and if you saw all those chords in a row piano players who don't know would just make a meal of all that <laughs> Can you imagine with all those numbers? Yeah. And they go, oh, and they're changed. And they wouldn't ever think to just go C and G, and let's keep that on the top of everything while I move the bass note around.
1: It's like a whole other way of thinking.
0: Yeah, it's massively another way of thinking. And it's, and it's piano players should be interested if they, because there's so many pia- jazz piano players now who are trying to do Nick Drake tunes and, they're, you know, they're trying to do, you know, find tunes from folk music. And, but then they're still approaching it with a kind of jazz musician's mm. approach to chord symbol, the vertical harmony thing. So I mean, and the James Taylor transcription thing was a lockdown project for me.
1: I know you were hugely productive in lockdown, weren't you? you
0: did so many different things. So you, how many? What? How many did you transcribe? Well, we're doing a we're doing a live uh, we're doing a live album at the Pizza Express plug on the first of October, and it seems we have like eleven or twelve James Taylor tunes.
1: I'll put a link down in the uh, description to for yeah. that event. That's going to be amazing.
0: I mean, it's just. And I think I overdid it at first because there's three or four of them that are really difficult to sing and it's right. cuz I just went I went deep dive into it.
1: Why are they difficult to sing? Cuz they're singing cuz the intricate guitar parts is it.
0: Well and I just put everything instead of slightly kind of maybe take being practical about oh right. okay you know and every every chorus is, is different because oh you are doing
1: the, it like literally and, exactly like it is on the recording it, yeah oh, like, wow
0: because the thing was the thing was when you're trying to rehearse a choir online that can't hear each other mm. you know so we did like this this thing where you you arrange something that's exactly like the album so that at the end of the two hours of note bashing we then all sing with the album yeah and the thing you're singing is somewhere on the track right so. i see you know, and there are things like if you're a bass singer and you're singing the bass lines, Jimmy Johnson plays, yeah. he's subtly changing every one. So what do I do? I just subtly change it every chorus. And it's like, oh, what? what? <laughs> I think the later yeah. ones are a little more practical, but it's too late for me to go back and simplify yeah, yeah, the album. Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a few in there that are so de- that are so detailed, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that sounds yeah. amazing. That gig sounds incredible, though.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, but, the, yeah, the, so the picking things and the realising that also that affects how you arpeggiate things as a guitarist, you know. Mm. You know, there are inner melodies and things in picking patterns that, that are quite, you know, it's, it, is, it, was, it made a massive kind of, I, did, I didn't expect it to. I don't know. I just had to find something to do. But I do like, I love those songs. And the other thing I noticed was that he, um, James Taylor, said he works on his picking patterns, his chords first, gets his voicings really yeah. nice. And then he says, once I've got those right, there's any one of maybe three melodies that offer themselves to me. If he gets the actual pattern of it right, he, he can pick and he can find a melody that might, you know, the melody's sort of in the, in the voicings already. When he's writing, you mean? When he's writing, when he's writing oh, yes. Wow, so okay. Sort of a melody. Yeah. He's already, he's already thinks there is, oh, like any of these could be the melody, you know, because okay, yeah. his pattern so beautiful. And then if you actually look at the melody line and the bass line mm. of most of his tunes, you realise they sound good without the chords. They have a good relationship. There's a lot of that thing, the interval like a sixth or a tenth or something. And there's also contrary motion. Bass lines go down, melodies go up. And you realise that he must think about that a lot. And then I read in his biography that when he started out playing guitar, he had to accompany hymns.
1: Right, okay.
0: In church. So he already got the independent bass line and the three part thing. Because he doesn't he's not strummer. I mean he does strum, but he yeah. has this idea of three parts and a bass note.
1: I was gonna say it's very like the whole kind of Bart Correll thing, isn't it? Thinking about it the is, top and it the bottom, is. it's all of that before you add that's the inner right. parts, you know.
0: It's really, really clear. So
1: that's obviously where it came from
0: and what what that also i realized that when i read triad chord symbols you know you know this is the other thing I, I don't know if people anybody's teaching this anywhere but it seems to me like when we read jazz chord symbols you know you know the numbers are in the right hand you know the letters mm-hmm. are in the bottom of the left hand basically yeah you're trying to make voice leading things flow you know we have this kind of thing we practice but if you're looking at a triad progression you know which maybe if it has a few colors in it like an ad nine or a sus two or something but basically what you're trying to do is look at the contours of the bass line and make the top of your voicing travel in a good relationship with the with the direction of the bass line so all those things that james taylor melodies do you know you know if you're looking at c going to f going to g going to c one four five one it's no good just to go move your hand around yeah your top note e would sound good on c a would sound good on f and you know B would sound good, but you... You don't
1: want it to sound like that. You want it to be more flowing, you know. You want yeah, to find a, a melody. Front,
0: but you have to be you have to be aware that certain notes are going to really resonate. Mm. So you get your vertical resonance and you get your horizontal flow as well. Yeah. You know, you're aware of those things. And then also, as you play the triad, if you think like a guitarist, you're thinking you've got a little wriggle room in each chord, because if a guitarist plays C, they're also F is quite near and G. So you're moving... The concept of C includes its neighbour chords. And I think... It seems like that's a thing to study.
1: Yeah, no, hundred percent. It's so useful that, and it gets you out of, it gets you out of the thing of always playing, you know, which I, I know a, a lot of people struggle with, of, of playing things in root position all the time, and actually finding like chord yeah. shapes that actually move and have melodies themselves that work alongside the main melody of the song, you know, the upper part, the little that's finger. Right.
0: As soon as you go from from a uh, root position and then you go to a different inversion of the next chord, you're actually you're implying a melody. There's, a, there's going to be a melody in there for songwriting, or, but certainly for accompanying, you know. So I think in answer to your question, the deep dive into James Taylor, I, sometimes you don't realise how much it's going to affect you until you, you've you done it, yeah. Yeah, and doing one would not have done it. I had to do about five before I started start to understand the yeah. language of his songwriting and of his playing and also how the band played together because that band with Larry Goldings incredible. and Jimmy Johnson, and you know, how they make it all work playing
1: together yeah, so good i'd love to ask you about your time in the west end um so for those I'll of you that... <laughs> i'll try and be discreet yeah Pete yeah. 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 pete's slightly yeah. putting his head in his hands but i would love to ask you about that um because that that's sort of a, a a sort of area that you kind of dip your dip your toe in for a very short time as an md and i imagine you must have been an absolutely amazing md with all your kind of skill set and people skills and rehearsal skills and all that kind of thing but so you were you were the md for five guys
0: named mo which is a west end show so when whenabouts was that 1993 and uh you know i'd been i was i was into writing musicals i'd written some musicals i'd actually won competition a national competition you know and and uh, thought for a while that maybe this is what i wanted to do but actually um, unrelated to my interest in musicals, I was sitting at home and I got a phone call saying that you'd be interested in being the musical director for a West End show. And I I thought those things happened, like you have to do your time, you have to do a couple of yeah. panto's in the provinces, and you know... Yeah. Go, Scarborough. You know, and, yeah, <laughs> do you the head and then go, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, 100%. The places, that's,
1: it, must, it must have been quite a moment where you're like, oh, maybe.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. And what it was, was they was looking for a musical director. And I'm I remember... Um, it was, you know, the fixer said. Well, I asked around. I needed a jazz pianist mm-hmm. who also could d- direct and and a rehearse direct from the piano and to rehearse voices. So that starts you realise that's a bit of a niche thing suddenly, because most jazz pianists, you know, are jazz pianists, right? Yeah. So I um and it's so in, in asking around the the the, the fixer my name came up twice and I it was apparently it was just like I'd done a couple of recording sessions for singers and and one involved some you know the instrumentalists who were on those sessions I'd been I'd done all the arrangements and yeah. I'd direct from the piano and I'd done the cutoffs and that seemed to know about the songs it was that it was this it was as weird as that and so they said well give me his number because he's come up two or three times in from several musicians you know and, and that's that's probably like you're only you never know every gig you do could be the one that this was like quite a like an un, unremarkable little session at a small recording studio for a demo or something mm. and it was big just because said somebody said oh that was very clear you know so then i, I went into the west end and i i, I went into the theater and i played the score and a bit of Boogie Woogie and, you know, and it was Louis Jordan tunes. And, and that and that, and that, was it. Although I remember I was on, just started playing with Mark Murphy, so I couldn't go to any of the, I couldn't see the show because I, I was doing two weeks on tour with Mark Murphy. And then this, I remember Soho Jazz Festival on a Sunday night and I had to open on the Monday night in this show. Oh, wow. And you hadn't seen the show at that point? Well, I'd gone in and I'd done it with the un- in the afternoon with the understudies four of the understudies and then stage managers reason, reading in the two missing parts oh my god wow yeah no i mean that's it's, it's ridiculous yeah. and i was thinking well i think i know about thinking tempos and that, and with just the rhythm section mm. and no horn section because it was a six-piece band you know yeah and then so monday came in it was suddenly oh my god there are lights and everything you know had suddenly it was like whether well, I, I was on st- band on stage and what they hadn't told me was that the opening number is played in the blackout so you were meant to have memorized it oh god <laughs> <laughs> so, Just to make it you know, one step it's even a more complicated. Nightmares. You yeah. know, these are things we wake up in a yeah. cold sweat about. So yeah. I, so I somehow survived. You know, the, the bit of tempo hell. You know, where the where the dancer said, "I can't dance at that tempo," and then I had to kind of learn that you you, you doubt your sense of. It was a dance show. It was an incredible show. Um, Clark Peters, that great American actor who lives here in London, and you know, he was the um, you know developed that show early on and i
1: remember you saying you once uh you once
0: had to actually teach the dance moves to someone because there was no one available so that was interesting yeah there was a changeover in choreographer and uh, suddenly we had to train a new a new understudy to go on yeah in, in a week you know and i went to pineapple dance studios in covent garden i went there thinking i was just going to accompany this this poor understudy while he was doing his five six seven yeah. eight but you yeah. know and then I suddenly realised that I knew the dance moves better than anybody oh, okay. at that time because I'd done the show for a year. So I was literally standing up, and said, "I think it's step ball change." <laughs> da, 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 you know, I'd love to have seen that because I'd heard all this. And I went, "Oh, thank you, know." And suddenly, yeah, yeah. You know, it was You're just teaching like teaching the whole class. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, I really, I, I really enjoyed the challenge of it. And but the the more serious point was that so rare to get a jazz mm. musical in the West End. And the thing I found hard. It was meant to be pretty much the same every night, right. and, and then so I, of course I wasn't doing that, and that was. And the cast loved it, but the, you know I used to get the memo saying, "Can you please play it more like the cast album?" Right. You know,
1: what you mean? You change the
0: tempos, or you change the arrangements, or like- no, not the tempos, never the tempos, but the comping thing. Sometimes you'd have to go round around. There was a lot of the, the the good thing about it was a lot of it was in D flat major and G flat, and I really got. A year's workout in these keys and didn't play not playing blue yeah in F in, sharp you know, yeah that's hard that, you know, yeah. That, yeah so so I would like if there was a vamp till ready I'd, I'd you know try and keep it fresh every night but in trying to keep it fresh every night I think sometimes they probably thought I was a bit wayward you know mm. although the cast never complained because they they were like me trying to keep it fresh every night you know yeah so um but the discipline of it was good. I also got to know some incredible people, and uh, but I think sometimes you do things like because the skills I had enabled me to do that thing. Yeah, that's not the reason you should do it just because you can. And I, I was thinking it's quite flattering, and I, you know, I got asked to do it, and I did it, and I was doing seven or eight shows a week. And uh, but the thing is, it's I suddenly thought, you know, maybe, maybe these skills I have I could use in more for the music that i really love and that's and that's where i got into kind of like directing you know got into working with kenny wheeler and and you know making things happen the same skills the md skills i suppose you know yeah the rehearsal skills that you that really Peace people in the west end
1: one of those things you
0: yeah know. i prefer to use them in service of the music that that i have a real passion for not to say yeah. i didn't enjoy the time but it's like you you just have to make a decision about which way your career is going to go because they had other shows lined up for me and i had to say look thank you very much but i don't want to do another show after this one you know and which was hard at the time because it was a extreme reduction in earnings
1: yeah. <laughs> but no it's good and you've obviously gone on to do so many amazing things and i imagine hugely more uh hugely more varied in some ways than trying to play something like the cast album exactly yeah. every night. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know you do a huge amount of work with music teachers and instrumental teachers and people that teach piano and a whole range of different instruments. And there's something you said once in an interview that has I I was always kind of stuck with me, which is the thing about sometimes people learn an instrument... I'm not... I'm going to totally butcher it now. <laughs> no, no. But sometimes, sometimes people learn an instrument before they have any music inside them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I would... I think this is so interesting because very few people talk about that. I think in this country, one of the things we do if someone wants to learn an instrument, is we immediately sit them down in front of the instrument, and they have a huge amount of things to contend with: coordination, trying mm. to get all these
0: different things together. And I'd love to hear what you mean by that. No, I, I no, I totally get it. I, I do think I, I think this is also, clear. F- I mean, I was, you know, even though I I've ended up working for the ABRSM and the exam board and developing the jazz syllabus and and you know training teachers and all that i was effectively one of these kids that was sort of damaged by the exam system
1: i think you can join i'll certainly be in that club as well yeah you know
0: and (laughs) it's like and it probably wasn't the the exam syllabus and all that it was that the way it was delivered i maybe had some teachers who weren't i was a different kind of learner obviously i'm an oral learner Mm. yeah and and you know somebody put the you know I, i basically stopped Studying piano quite early on, and I was about twelve or thirteen. I threw my toys out the pram, and and the interesting thing is that um, it's been going on for a long, long time. You know, the exam, beginning of the twentieth century. You know, the teaching yeah. KBIRSM. You know, and the grade system. It's you know, and I know it's really trying to it's really trying to redefine itself now. And you know, like, mm. and it's and there's nothing wrong with the music itself. But it's it, in the hands of the right teachers teachers with imagination you know but one of the things that i think happens in this country is that um if kids show any kind of musicianship then they the first question is oh i wonder what instrument they should learn you know and uh, and and then suddenly little johnny has to learn the violin and for the rest of his life he sees music through the lens of a violin you know any subsequent you know music is comes at him through through this instrument whereas i think we you know and the problem is is that if you're going to reach a level where you're going to be employable as a like an orchestral player you probably do have to start really really young maybe Mm -hmm. but but the thing is that, that maybe the casualties people of that system you know the people who might have more music in them or of an app, or if we'd kept them away from an instrument and made them sing more from a very young age. You know, it seems to me that, you know, if, you, if kids, you want to put music into kids, you have to get them to sing and to dance and to move and to listen to music and respond so that when you give them an instrument, the, in, the music's already in you and the instrument is the thing that releases the music that's inside you. That's that's basically mm. what I think, and I also think that there's a difference. The in American education, you know, I'm sure it has its faults. But one of the things is that classroom teaching is is banned. Not not double NED banned is banned practice. You know, and you don't always get to play the instru- instrument you'd like to. You just play whatever they need. Yeah. But they must have this concept of music as in, in a non-instrument specific way. Which means we're going to learn about basic musical things through playing an instrument. It's just you know you'll have to play trombone for now because you know we've got enough trumpets or something. You know, or, um, and quite a lot of the musicians I really respect moved around a few instruments. I know you play a few instruments, and Nikki, mm. my wife Nikki Isle, she's she started as a clarinetist and then a saxophone player, and then became a pianist, and mm. you know, and has this kind of sees music, you know, not just p- pianistically you know yeah as a really and i think the singing thing you know i i probably see music you know I, that leads to my to went to the way i i play the piano you know sometimes i'm not thinking of the piano when i play the piano right. sometimes think right this is going to be low brass for a course yeah. it's or be, guitar or you know, something yeah exactly. Guitar, you know those things and yeah. you realize that i think it's like we do kids a disservice by by getting them to Because, you know, like some instruments are high maintenance, you know, mouthpieces Mm. and embouchures Mm. and and strings, you know, like vibratos and, and, you know, and that that becomes the focus of all your energy. It's like, when do I put my thumb under, you know, and all that kind of thing. And it's, yeah, you can't even stand up and just belt out a good song yet, you know. Where's the Mm -hmm. music, you know? And, And now you're just trying to solve, like, issues of damage, limitation issues on an instrument when you should be, you know. Sing at the top of your lungs, and uh, and time, the time feel thing, you know, I don't think you can develop a good time feel through your instrument. Mm. I think it comes from dancing and responding to back. i'd like if you know quite a lot of maybe jazz students are sometimes their their rhythmic stability is or their instability rhythmically, if you like, is because they haven't done either enough like like explicitly rhythmic music, whether it's the bassy band. Or backbeat music, whether it's just like Tower of Power or something, you know, yeah. something that's just like Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's just that's where it is. And you get yeah. it. And then you go to your instrument, you play with other people, and you can be subtle and things can be implied because you've got it already deep inside you through non instrumental activity. <laughs> right. I see. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I think there are some key things that are not connected to the instrument that, you know, that can be dealt with through dancing and singing. And you sometimes see those kind of sistema things in Venezuela, and you look at these massed kind of like educational orchestras, and they're all moving. And you think, well, that's already a singing and dancing culture, more so certainly than the UK. Yeah. You know, so that then that's fine. You know, the instruments become an extension of of that. You know, does that make sense? Sorry,
1: hundred percent. Yeah, no, it just it's, it gives me so much thought because it kind of makes you a. Uh gives me so many ideas and just kind of makes me question a lot of the ways things are taught and the way they, Hmm. the way a lot of people learn and the way I was taught initially. Yeah,
0: I think we have to re-examine things. Nothing is, is, nothing should be left unexamined, you know, Mm. you know, just because it's always been that way. You know, there's, there are a lot of, there's a whole lot of music, classical music, which is, is only possible that it still exists because of the foot soldiers that get trained. Of course industry that supports it
1: and i think that's that is a huge part as well of what you do because you do take lots of children each year to every two years to the albert hall and get them singing and those those things are i know have been like life-changing for for so many so many well, people that well, have, the um,
0: ones we you know we're doing it together now and that's yeah. the great thing is those those massed choir things which which start off as like you know only 200 kids at a time <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Them all together and that's expanded kids at a time but The interesting thing is that, you know, it's quite a modest kind of like ambition really just to get a lot of kids moving, clapping and singing so you can understand the words, you know. And and we have this obsession in choirs, children's choirs, you know, with harmony. It's like, you know, it's like, you've probably heard me say, I go into a, going to a school to do a workshop and say how's the choir and they're, oh what is it? we're singing in two parts but i think three parts by next next year and it's like <laughs> that's not what i asked you yeah why do you think yeah. that's a barometer of how good your choir is by how many parts they sing and that's such a that's such a kind of risk reductivist kind of way of looking at singing mm. you know but that's because there will be concerts and people who assess things on juries and that's their barometer of that's a litmus test of how good the choir is, of, of how many parts they can sing in or something. And I love singing in harmony. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, I've heard some. Get the more singing
1: amazing unison, yeah, I've a really great melody. Incredible
0: unison choir. Yeah. Was up in Yorkshire. There was one up in Leeds, this woman, she's, this was a long time ago. She ran a unison choir, 80 kids, with this incredible sound. And you think, yeah. God, wouldn't harmony spoil that? It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's such a nice place um to sort of
1: round off pete it's been such a great uh pleasure talking to you and um you know you've been so hugely influential on me and i know so many other people and it's just great to sit down and chat about all this stuff um what's kind of next for you is there something you haven't done yet or you know, i know you're, you're sort of more often uh mentioning retirement now and sort of that's uh, slightly uh, on the horizon is there something uh, you haven't done yet or a project that you'd love to do that you're just thinking or is it literally doing the thing where you just go back to the piano and you sing songs again is that
0: is that where you're kind of yeah heading? I did us did an album you know I haven't recorded much you know um I've facilitated recordings you know and I've directed things and it's that's been a privilege and the work with Kenny Wheeler and his big band album last big band album and his vocal music and then and uh but you know I did an album when I was forty, a nice you know, which was really lovely, just standards, and I enjoyed doing that uh, with Bobby Wellins. That was and the late Dave Wickens, That was um, that was a thing that I really enjoyed. And then subsequently, I did that al- al- album of my own songs, right? Um, called Stories to Tell, which is I'd like to do another of those. Yeah, I'd like to do I you know, I'd like. And I'd like to write some new songs. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's probably, I'm, I, I'm very lucky that I've, you know, I've got much, much further in the, as a musician, in the breadth of what I do than my training, mm-hmm. if you call it that, would have suggested would possible, yeah. you know. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so lucky to have had the opportunities. And there's a lot of stuff that I've already done, which is more than enough mm-hmm. for me to look back on. You know, that, and I've spent a a lot of my time facilitating, and I probably need to facilitate myself for a bit.
1: Yeah. You know, that's such a a lovely way to end. I can't wait to uh, hear the new recording or the new songs. I think it's (laughs) going to be, I think it's going to be wicked. Pete, thanks so much for coming on.
0: A pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so
1: much to Pete for coming on the podcast. I certainly found that really inspiring. Do go and check out all those links in the description and go and see him play live. Thank you so much for listening. We have lots of other awesome guests coming up for you. So do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode.